0: Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be continuing the coverage of the murder of William Jake Embert in Albany, Georgia. Let's get right to it. Quick recap, Jake Embert was recently divorced after a 26-year marriage when he went looking for love online. In 2012, he met Susan. Y'all remember her. I mean, how could we forget? Susan Marie Johnson Melton Majors Fortune, aka Lady Fortune, aka Susan, several aliases. Jake Embert suffered a heart attack, a sudden onset of a seizure disorder, another heart attack. Issues with his stomach and a whole host of medical problems not long after meeting Susan. And Jake? Well, he had always been so healthy. His family was growing increasingly concerned. So with their urging, Jake had scheduled several doctor's appointments and it looked like he was finally about to get to the bottom of what was causing his issues. That was until June 28, 2014. When Lady Fortune placed a 911 call stating that she had just found her husband dead of an apparent suicide. If you haven't listened to episode one, you should check it out and then meet us right back here. After a 38 minute police investigation, Jake's death was officially ruled a suicide, and police packed it up and went home. Case closed. But the Embert fam ain't buying Susan's story because, well, that just isn't Jake. And the more time the family had to process what had happened, the more they began to question little things that at the time seemed little, but in hindsight, all of those little things that were off about Susan suddenly seemed huge. And so the family tried to get assistance from the Doherty County police. You know, the agency that investigated Jake's so-called suicide with no luck. I mean, the police went and talked to Susan several aliases on July 10th, 2014, according to police reports. And by talk to her, I mean, she made the statement that just prior to Jake's death, he was depressed and he had two recent heart attacks. And then she refused to answer any more questions and walked into the house. Officers noted that she appeared to be hyped up as if she was on some type of medication. And that's about it. A 38 minute investigation at the scene, a handful of photos snapped by the responding officer, a couple more taken by the coroner, a police report in which the narrative is just about mm, a paragraph long. The gun, shell casing, and bullet secured and entered into evidence for safekeeping, and two supplemental narratives entered in, one being that follow-up with Susan, and the other, Yvonne's handwritten statement with another paragraph summary typed up by the detective and stapled on top. And that is all she wrote. I mean, honestly, I've seen a more thorough investigation on an auto theft case, but what do I know? But as I told you before, the Embert family ain't going down that easy. At their wits end, the family sought help in the form of a private investigator, and Yvonne found a hell of an investigator, the incredible and tenacious Mr. Lee Wilson. And what he was able to uncover? Well, consider my mind blown. In August of 2014, Yvonne makes that call to Investigator Wilson, and after a brief conversation, he says, I've got to be honest with you. You could spend your money, and you may not like what you're going to hear. Meaning, he was going to investigate this case objectively, and he may come to the same conclusion as police. But Yvonne knows in her heart that her brother did not commit suicide. So she scheduled a consultation and that first consultation between investigator Wilson and the Embert family goes on for hours. The family informs him of Jake's sudden onset of these strange illnesses after meeting Susan and how Jake had told Yvonne just days after marrying lady fortune that she was pressuring him to change the beneficiary of his life insurance. Will, Jake's son, reported seeing a drop of blood on Susan's left hand near her wedding ring the night his father was shot. And we all know Susan made sure the 911 dispatcher and anyone and everyone knew that she had not touched Jake or anything around him and that she was not in the room when he shot himself, right? Susan had gone around telling multiple people, including members of Jake's family, that she had been cleared by police because she had passed a gunshot residue test and that jake had also been tested which never occurred it had also came to light after jake's death that the family home he and his first wife had worked so hard to obtain was going into foreclosure y'all remember i told you how responsible jake had always been with his finances prior to susan right And that doctor's appointment, Jake was getting closer and closer to getting answers about why he was so sick. There was also a family reunion coming up, and Jake's sisters were going to make sure he was in attendance. Along with the fact that Susan had brought a computer with her when she moved into Jake's home, but she complained that it was too slow. And soon enough, she had taken over Jake's computer and Jake's home. And nobody, and I mean nobody, besides Susan, was allowed to so much as lay a finger on that computer. Not weird, right? Investigator Wilson is also informed of the strange events after Jake's death. See, Susan didn't appear to be reacting to her husband's death in the way one might expect. And I get it. Everyone reacts differently. But y'all, this is way outside the bounds of a typical response to grief. I mean, she called over William Bell to come help her move the mattress that Jake had died on out to the curb by the front of the house for God and everybody, including Jake's children, to drive past to see the rather large blood stain, And it was left out there until a neighbor complained, and then the county picked it up. Y'all remember William Bell, the man that Susan, the not-nurse, was caring for that suddenly was waving a gun around, threatening her and her mother. The whole ass reason they had to move into the Embert home in the first place. Yeah, I don't think I'm calling that guy for help if that story was true. There's also the fact that Susan's several aliases didn't even want to have services for Jake because according to what she expressed to the family, he had no family and friends. So who the hell are all these people? and his friends from work, I think it's well established that Jake Embert was loved by many. And when the family did plan services to remember their beloved Jake, guess who wasn't in attendance? Yep, you guessed it, Susan herself. And not only was she not present, none of her family members were present either. I mean, Jake was her husband, Her mother lived with them for a period of time, yet she and none of her family attend her own husband's memorial service. I reckon she was too busy cashing in that initial $50,000 payout from Jake's life insurance. Or maybe she was online chatting it up on one of the several dating websites she still maintained even through her marriage to Jake. Or maybe she was changing the locks on the family home so that she controlled who had access because that happened just the day after Jake's death. There was also that post on Facebook by Susan on July 8th, which the family felt was clearly directed at them since they were questioning Jake's suicide, which read in part to whom it may concern. I do not play games and do not tolerate any drama or negativity that comes my way. I am way too smart for all of this, so please back off, or I will have no choice but to take necessary legal action. I am way too grown to spend my last days here on earth in jail. Oh, the irony. Y'all see why this initial consultation lasted hours. I mean, there was a lot to discuss. So Investigator Wilson rolls up his sleeves and gets to work. He does his thing and obtains the police reports, photos, starts reaching out to witnesses and digging into Lady Fortune's past husbands and past criminal record. Yep, I said it. Sisters got a hell of a past. Four DUIs, a hit and run with damage to property, two driving on a suspended license, a couple of assault and batteries on law enforcement, and resisting arrest with violence. Three domestic violence batteries, toss in a few probation violations, and sprinkle a little bit of criminal mischief and trespassing on top, and you've got yourself the shit stew that is Susan's criminal record. Surprise, surprise, she's not a nurse, not possible with that many felonies. Lee Wilson confirms that despite Susan's multiple claims all over her multiple social media accounts— and her constant reassurance to the family that she could take care of Jake because she was a nurse. She had never so much as had any formal medical training. It seems Susan's entire story was built on deceit, lies, and general trash. And those dating sites she maintained through her marriage. Well, let's just say Homegirl was keeping her options open. There was Christian Mingle, Plenty of Fish, Match.com, Zeusk, and Chemistry. I don't even know how she found the time. Remember those plans Jake had with his son Will to go see his Firebird run at the drag strip on the morning he was shot? A man by the name of Douglas Buckner also spoke to Investigator Wilson. He's the man who traded his Jeep for Jake's Pontiac Firebird. Buckner was a huge racing fan and had attended races in the area for years, and he was familiar with Jake from the drag strip. He was on Craigslist scrolling when he saw an ad for a race car for sale, and lo and behold, it was Jake's car. He called, and Susan's several aliases answered. She told him that the race car was for sale because Jake wouldn't be able to drive it again. He then discussed the details with Jake, and arrangements were made for him to come and view the car. A couple days later, Mr. Buckner went to the Embert home. At his first meeting, Mr. Buckner and Jake are hanging out together in Jake's shop. Talking about the Firebird and looking at tools. I mean, they're both really into cars and racing and have a lot to talk about. Jake had put a lot of work into the Firebird, and Buckner remembered it back from the days Jake used to race. It had been sitting for a while, but it was still in excellent condition. I mean, this is Jake we're talking about here. He knew his way around a car. And overbearing and always in Jake's business, Susan, is of course right there in the middle of the conversation as usual. And when Jake goes into the house to make a drink, Susan brings up the tools, asking Mr. Buckner if he'd be interested in buying them. Because since Jake won't have the car, he won't need the tools. And when Mr. Buckner brings this up to Jake, Jake hesitates and says his tools are more of a sentimental value to him. He's not interested in selling them because he's saving them for his son, Will. So the conversation ends. That's until Susan brings it up yet again. Multiple times, she brings up wanting to sell Jake's tools that first day in Jake's workshop. And the next day, when Jake meets up with Mr. Buckner to drive the Jeep. It's brought up so many times and so completely behind Jake's back That Mr. Buckner finally flat out tells her that he's not buying any of Jake's tools unless Jake agreed to it in front of him. There were several more very interesting statements made by Susan to Mr. Buckner about Jake not being around much longer. Wait, what? I mean, Jake had no terminal illnesses. He hadn't been diagnosed with anything, especially anything that would have such a grim prognosis. At one point, in earshot of Jake, Susan stated that they needed to get rid of the car because Jake was no longer capable of driving it and he, quote, would not be here with us much longer. And Jake responded, that is up to the man upstairs while pointing towards heaven. Y'all, I can't. She makes my freaking skin crawl. Mr. Buckner reported to Investigator Wilson that Jake actually had become teary-eyed as they were concluding the transaction with a handshake. It was then that Jake had mentioned that he wanted to watch the car run again as soon as it was ready. So the two stayed in frequent contact as Mr. Buckner worked on the car. Jake actually went by Mr. Buckner's shop once he had her purring like a kitty again and all shined up. He had made plans to come to the Strip and watch Mr. Buckner race that car on that Saturday, June 28th. Mr. Buckner had even called several times a day of the race in the afternoon, but those calls go unanswered. Investigator Wilson also speaks to Susan's husband prior to Jake, and he reports that Susan drank very heavily and abused all types of drugs, and that on occasion, she would disappear for a day or two, and he would have no idea who she was with or where she had been, and on more than one occasion, he had picked her up from a drug-infested neighborhood where she'd been out on a binger. He would also tell the investigator that Susan had been violent towards him multiple times. She had also been known to injure herself and then call police stating that he had beaten her. In one instance, Susan's prior husband recalls that Susan had returned after a drug binge and injured herself outside of their trailer and then called the police. And had it not been for a neighbor who witnessed her hurting herself, he believed he would have been charged. An incident somewhat similar had led to Susan seeking a restraining order and filing for divorce. Charges were pressed, and he pled not guilty. At a court hearing, Susan showed up so intoxicated that the judge dismissed the charge based on Susan's inability to testify. And more importantly, in regard to Jake, Susan had stated to her ex-husband, That Jake had led her to believe he was financially secure, and she had then discovered that not to be true, adding something along the lines of, you know I don't take that from anybody. She also made those claims about being investigated by law enforcement and passing that gunshot residue test. That never happened. Susan's prior husband adds that he believes without a doubt that Susan is capable of homicide. Without a doubt. And what the hell is she talking about anyway? Jake was financially stable all the way up until 2013, when lo and behold, money very routinely began being transferred from Jake Embert's bank accounts to accounts owned or controlled by Susan, not the nurse. And it seems she burned through that money faster than she could transfer it. And Susan, well, she thought she was going to cash in on a rather large life insurance policy in the event of Jake's untimely death. Like I said, Jake had a great job at MCLB Albany and was prior military. So Susan's several aliases intended to gain between 400000 and 500000 or so she thought. In what has to be the best turn of events so far in this case, Jake forgot to check a box. What box, you ask? We'll see, Jake's first wife had always taken care of those types of affairs, making sure his will and life insurance documents were in order, finances, all those things. And so old Jake didn't have a clue what he was doing when he updated that life insurance policy at Susan's urging. In his original life insurance policy, Jake had opted for the five times clause, insuring him and in the amount of five times his salary. But you have to check the box next to the five times clause. And Jake didn't. Jake updated everything else and he made Susan primary beneficiary, but he didn't check the clause box. So instead of that half a mil payout, she'd only be getting... Roughly $90,000. Poor, unfortunate Susan. Around the same time she was notified of this tragic little slip-up, receiving a letter documenting that the payout would only be roughly $90,000, another 911 call is placed to the Embert home, this time by Susan's mother, claiming her daughter needs to go to the psych ward because she just can't handle her anymore and she's been trying for an hour. Quote, she just won't be still. She's wallowing all around. She's just not to herself. She's out of her mind. And that she's rolling around on the bed, moaning for nothing. And I can't get her to recognize who I am. Her mother, of course, blames it on her husband's suicide. Susan can be heard moaning in the background. Dramatic as hell, of course. Odd timing, right? And I'm not saying the fact that she was notified that she'd only be getting around a fifth of the payout she was expecting is the reason for the sudden mental breakdown or that 911 call and the wallowing around in self-pity. But I'm not not saying it either. She seems to be real good at playing the role of victim. On August 22, 2014, Susan was served notice that Rachel, Jake's daughter, had been appointed as administrator of her father's estate. And wouldn't you know, about 48 hours later, Lady Fortune packed her bags, rented a U-Haul, and trekked it on down to Florida, but not before she cleaned out the Imbert family home, taking everything of value, including family heirlooms, that rightfully should have went to Rachel and Will and the Imbert family. You know, like the Jeep that Jake had just traded his Pontiac for that she gave to her own son. Or the purple heart Jake Embert's father earned that was never found. It was eventually replaced after a year-long ordeal of Yvonne petitioning for a new one to be issued. But you can't just simply replace the original. Every time I think about that, my blood freaking boils. But Susan did leave a few very important things behind. I mean, once Rachel became executor of her father's estate... She and Will went over and secured the house and documented the state of the home. It was a wreck, with random garbage scattered throughout the house. Everything that had any dollar value, including the majority of the furniture, was gone. There was a drawer full of pill bottles, empty, with no labels in the bathroom, a beer can in the bathroom trash can, some pills crushed on an end table, and a post-it note reading, Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. If only Susan had taken her own advice. But the most important things Susan left behind weren't the pill bottles or post-it notes. Rachel is also able to snatch up Jake's toothbrush, a roll of his deodorant, and most important of all, his hairbrush. And this right here, ladies and gentlemen, will be crucial to getting justice for Jake Embert. I don't think at the time anybody realized the exact magnitude of this moment, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Rachel got in touch with her inner FBI and was able to gain access to her dad's Facebook account, and she read the messages that Susan had exchanged with Jake. First off, the messages are just constant, and these are only the Facebook messages, Going through the messages, it's pretty clear that if they weren't messaging back and forth on Facebook, then they were on the phone. And remember that odd statement Jake made to his sister about taking care of his responsibilities and how it seemed like he was hinting that Susan was pregnant? Well, he was. Susan had claimed that she had two positive pregnancy tests. She later on says that she went to the health department and it turned out it was negative, but she strings him along with this fake pregnancy for a little while. She also says repeatedly that she can't live with Jake until the pair are married because she's going to do things right this time. Because let's face it, the fourth time is definitely a charm. Am I right? She was obviously, although I'll admit, very slyly pressuring Jake to marry her. Y'all, this woman is crazier than a sprayed roach. I really don't know how else to put it. Investigator Wilson obtains the photographs taken at the scene by the responding officer and the coroner. Upon reviewing the photos, which let me just say there weren't many, he is more convinced than ever that this in no way, shape, or form appears to be a suicide. The scene looks painfully staged. And Investigator Wilson ain't playing around, and he calls in an expert who you all might be familiar with. He's made appearances on Nancy Grace and Jane Velez Mitchell, and is well known for his involvement in the Trayvon Martin case. He actually wrote a book on that case entitled Intermediate Range, The Forensic Evidence in the Killing of Trayvon Martin. It's forensic science and criminology consultant, Mr. Michael Knox of Knox Forensics, And let me just tell y'all, his education, accreditation, and experience are endless. This man is to forensic science what Maury is to lie detector tests. You can't have one without the other. Well, I mean, I guess you could, but it would suck. He has investigated thousands of crime scenes, been the lead crime scene investigator on over 350 death investigations, including roughly 200 homicides. He is the GOAT. So, Investigator Wilson overnights his case file to Mr. Knox on November 3rd, 2014. I told y'all this man wasn't playing. Mr. Knox visited the Embert home on November 16th. It was late on a Sunday night. Nevertheless, Investigator Wilson and Mr. Knox carefully examined the scene, the bullet hole in the wall, and made calculations. If that doesn't show the level of dedication of these two men... I don't know what does. And on November 25th, 2014, Mr. Knox renders his opinion. And in his professional opinion wrote, Mr. Embert's death was a homicide and not a suicide. And his recommendation was that a thorough investigation complete with comprehensive crime scene analysis be carried out in this case. And what led Mr. Knox to that opinion? Well, buckle up because here we go. Knox noted that the bullet perforated the wall to Mr. Embert's left, approximately 4 foot 1.5 inches above the floor. The bed is only 5 feet wide, but the bullet strike on the wall is 5 foot 8 inches from the adjoining wall. The bullet's path as it penetrated the drywall was either perpendicular to the wall or fired at some slight angle toward the wall behind Mr. Embert's back. The trajectory of the bullets path indicated that at the moment Jake was shot, his head was not above the bed, but above the floor adjacent to the bed, meaning at the time he was shot, he was not lying back on the bed and would have had to have been sitting on the edge of the bed, leaning forward. And this position is inconsistent with the location of the firearm and the position of Jake's body. You see, Jake was found with his legs off the side of the bed, slightly extended He was flat on his back with his arms down by his sides, gun still in his hand, or shall I say, his hand placed around the gun. Mr. Knox goes on to write that if Jake had shot himself in the head while leaning forward over the edge of the bed, as the trajectory of the bullet's path indicated, that the pistol would likely have dropped to the floor and his body would have fallen forward because his weight would have shifted that direction. And the bed... Well, the bedding showed obvious signs that his body was pushed or pulled further onto the mattress prior to police arrival. Mr. Knox described it as the boat wake effect of rippling in the sheets. Just think about it. If you were lying on your bed and someone pushed or pulled you, the sheets would ripple in the direction you were pulled or pushed. And in the crime scene photos, the rippling of the sheets is glaringly obvious. A red bath mat was also on the bed above Jake's head, which was on top of the blood pool, yet his hair was splayed on top of the mat. Knox noted that this stacking of evidence could not have occurred in any conceivable scenario of suicide, and instead was due to post-shooting alteration of the scene. A small pool of blood that was to the left of Jake's body could also not be explained by the suicide story, and was due again to someone altering the scene. Mr. Knox also notes the position of Jake's hand on the pistol. His index and middle fingers were placed over the grip of the gun, and his ring and small fingers weren't even on the gun. If the gun had remained in his hand after it went off, his ring and small fingers would have still been wrapped around the grip, and his index finger would have still been inside of the trigger guard. And Jake's index finger was nowhere near that trigger or trigger guard. And the entrance wound. Remember, the coroner had told Jake's daughter Rachel, and actually written it in his report, that Jake had what he referred to as a press contact wound, meaning the gun was either pressed directly to the skin or in very, very close proximity. Well Mr. Knox disagrees and indicated that there was no tearing of the skin extending from the margin of the wound No apparent blood or tissue in the barrel of the pistol, the slide, in between the slide and the barrel, the tip of the recoil spring guide, or end of the receiver. All places that would typically hold blood and or tissue from a pressed or near contact gunshot wound. Instead, only trace indications of blood were found on the pistol. The gun was clean, along with Jake's hand. Mr. Knox also noted that there was no apparent blood spatter on Jake's right hand. And for all those reasons, as I said, Michael Knox recommended a thorough investigation be carried out. And I just want to note here that Mr. Knox did not charge this family for his work. Working through this case, I just got to tell you guys, I developed a whole new level of respect for Mr. Michael Knox. So investigator Wilson gathered all the evidence and statements and put together a hell of a case file to present to the district attorney's office. And he did just that. The district attorney and his investigation team reviewed the case. And after an extensive review, they reached the same conclusion that Jake's family, Lee Wilson and Michael Knox had reached. Jake Embert did not commit suicide. He was murdered. And the scene was staged to look like a suicide. And what had Susan been doing all this time? You know, while Jake's family was mourning their loss, trying to pick the pieces back up, all while having to fight for his justice? Y'all know what Susan was doing, don't ya? She's down in Florida, spending that cash, buying new cars, fixing her teeth, and she's moved on to yet another man. Oh yeah, and according to Susan's Facebook her new flame began having medical troubles, too. And although this man never believed Susan had anything to do with his medical problems, I mean, Jake Embert didn't either. Manipulation seems to be the one thing Lady Fortune has down pat. But she's not quite as handy when it comes to covering her tracks. On February 12, 2015, Susan Marie Johnson Melton Majors Fortune was indicted on charges of malice murder and aggravated assault by a Doherty County grand jury. She is soon arrested and extradited back to Doherty County. But she won't spend too long in jail because the judge grants her a bond and she is allowed to await trial under house arrest. This woman is facing malice murder charges and yet she is granted a bond? Y'all let that sink in for a moment. The Embert family has had their beloved Jake ripped from them at the hands of this woman. And even after they hire their own investigator to do the job police should have done in the first damn place and get enough evidence to get this monster charged and arrested, and she just walks out of the jail to eat bonbons and watch soap operas until she's due back in court for murder charges... On what planet is this even remotely okay? I mean, the victim's family has to worry about bumping into their family member's murderer while popping into the local Walmart to grab some groceries. This comes as yet another blow to the Embert family. But things were about to turn around real quick and in a hurry. Remember that hairbrush I said was going to end up being monumental in this case? Y'all thought I forgot about it, didn't you? We'll see. Hair samples were taken from Jake's brush, verified they were Jake's through his son Will's DNA, and then sent off to the lab for a little bit of forensic analysis. They hadn't quite come in prior to Susan's indictment, but on June 24th, 2015, the results were in. And what did they reveal? According to the report, William Jake Embert had been the victim of serious intoxication with heavy metals, including chromium, arsenic, cadmium, and barium. But most significant is that Jake was also intoxicated with high concentrations of tolamide, otherwise known as DEET insect repellent, and triethylene glycol, being the material that DEET is dissolved in. Both are very toxic in high concentrations. And in conclusion, the report states Gastrointestinal symptoms and cardiac events Mr. Embert suffered may be attributed to ingestion by the victim of repetitive doses of DEET and triethylene glycol. And with that report, everything made sense. The heart attacks, the sudden seizures, the gastro issues, everyone at Jake's office being afraid to eat any of Jake's food. Why Susan said Jake wouldn't be around much longer. This explained everything. Susan hadn't only shot her husband in the head and staged a suicide scene. She had been poisoning him all along. And with the results of a toxicology report on June 24, 2015. Almost exactly a year to the day Susan had murdered Jake, a superseding grand jury indictment was issued and Susan's several aliases was indicted on several more charges. She was now facing a grand total of five charges one count of malice murder for shooting Jake and attempting to make the shooting appear to be a suicide, one count of felony murder for causing the death of Jake while in the commission of an aggravated assault, two counts of aggravated assault, one for shooting Jake and the other for poisoning Jake with the intent to murder, and finally, one count of possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. When you really let it sink in exactly how many attempts Susan made on Jake's life and how she had a front row seat to Jake's suffering, yet she continued on with her plans. I mean, can you even understand the level of evil and greed that requires? Because I sure as hell can't. And why did Susan change course from the slow, torturous death she was inflicting on Jake and decide to shoot him? Well... It seemed the pressure was mounting on Susan. This suicide wasn't her original plan. No, no. She could make Jake sick with the poisoning and make it look like he had a heart attack or seizure took him out. No one would suspect a thing. And had she accomplished that she might have gotten away with it. But Jake was tougher than she thought. He loved life. He was not going to give up. No freaking way. He fought to get better. And she knew he would continue to fight. So she had to think of something quick. The money was running out she was burning through it faster than Jake could make it. She wasn't paying the bills and Jake would soon find out that the house was going to be going into foreclosure. That family reunion was coming up and Jake's sisters were going to be sure he was there. And she knew if he made it to that family reunion, there was no way after seeing just how sick Jake was, his sisters were going to just let him go back home to Susan, not the nurse. And his doctor was about to get to the bottom of exactly why Jake was having these medical issues. She was about to be exposed. And you see, Jake didn't know any of this. He didn't know the house was going into foreclosure. He didn't know Susan wasn't a nurse. He didn't know anything about her criminal record. Because, well, Jake was the kind of guy who just took you at face value. I mean, he was an honest guy, the type to close a deal with a square look in the eye and a handshake. The type that if he told you something, you could count on it. A hard worker who got everything he had the old-fashioned way, through hard and honest work. He didn't see it coming. He couldn't have. This level of evil wasn't even on Jake's radar. Susan batted her eyes and talked real sweet and played the role of the tireless caretaking nurse. This is a woman who had never held down a steady job for any length of time. She wouldn't know hard work if it walked up and punched her in the face. She was a bloodsucker who found men seduce them, drain their bank accounts, and dipped out onto her next target. Remember, this is the same woman who would go as far as to hurt herself in order to manipulate the system. So she appeared to be the victim when all along she was the perpetrator. And when everything was about to unravel, Susan's solution was to murder Jake in cold blood and once again play the victim then cash in on that life insurance policy and move along to see what she could get out of the next husband. But she underestimated the Embert family. And that's something you just don't do. See, they're not the type to just back down and go along with the status quo. Hard working grit was ingrained in them. And they loved them some Jake. They were going to fight for him. There was no doubt about that. And Mr. Lee Wilson... I told y'all he was one hell of an investigator. They weren't going to let her get away so easy. And justice was coming. In fact, it was just around the corner. And that, my friends, is where I have to leave you for today. But as always, I'll leave you with a little something. And that is this. Susan, not the nurse, did become Susan the defense witness. Oh, yeah, y'all. Against the pleas of her attorney, Susan took the stand and testified in her own defense. And as much as I'd love to take you on a ride on that crazy train, it'll have to wait until next week. You don't want to miss the conclusion of Jake's case next Thursday. Believe me, you just don't. For more information and photographs pertaining to this case, you can follow me on Facebook, at least of these, or on Instagram, at least underscore of these new cases drop every Thursday. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So you'll never miss an episode. Once again, huge shout out to the Embert fam. Thank you guys so much for entrusting me with your story. It has been a huge honor working with y'all. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something and until next time be good to each other.